All right, we're started. All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Kurt Blorstad, and he published in 2019 a book that I read, really fascinating book. Title of the book is Occupied, a novel based upon a true story. And his website is www.kurtblorstad.com. But this is a family story that he wrote and uh, takes place in Norway, but he can talk more about that. So Kurt, are you there? Yes, I am, William, and thank you for having me on the show today. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Can you talk about kind of your family? You have a kind of a a multi or an international family background. Can you talk about that background and what led you to put their stories together in this book, Occupied? Oh, yes. Um, Obviously, my father is from Norway, but when I say that, um, he was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1929, and then with the Depression, he and his brother, mother and father, moved back to Norway to the family farm with their grandparents at the age of two. And so when I would ask my father, you know, are you an American? Are you a, are you a Norwegian? He'd say, well, I'm a Norwegian American. He says, I'm an American because I was born there. But I really spent my entire childhood and teenage years growing up in Norway and didn't come back until I was 17 because of the war. And, and the war really split their family. I mean, they all went back to Norway. And then as things got better and the depression got better and in the United States, my grandfather decided to come back, um, try to get established again, make some money and make enough money to bring his entire family back with him. Um, the problem with that was um, the Germans didn't necessarily have the same plan as they did and then invaded Norway before my father, brothers, and uh, grandmother could come back. So they were split during the war. And it, you know, lent to a lot of interesting stories as a a child growing up. My father would say, oh yeah, you know, had to ski to school and do all those things. And, you know, had to work every day and just my life, you know, it was fun, but it was a lot of hard work growing up. It's nothing like it is now, as he would explain to me that, you know, you've got it easy, you, you know, it's, things are easy on the kids these days and so you know you listen to it as a child and you think okay yeah it's like every other's father has the same stories I skied both ways uphill to school and it was terrible weather and blah 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 you know and it goes on and and it wasn't until I got to be in my 20s that I maybe really appreciated it when I would hear my grandmother talk about the stories and things that happened and this as a child when we would go over is nothing anybody spoke about. None of them spoke about the occupation, the war, what happened. They all kind of were very close to the vest with things that happened. They didn't want to say what I learned later was some really terrible things. And I understand why they didn't want to share it to me or share it with me as a child or as a, as a young teenager. Right. And so what was your father's name? Um, my father was Trigva, Trigva, Trig, right. Trigva Paul Blorstad. And so his and he father, had a bro- brother too, a brother and sisters. He had a large family, right? Yeah, he had an older brother, Toroff, who was about a year and three months older. And then he had a younger brother, Odd, who was, uh, I want to say about four years younger than him. And then a younger sister who I think is six years younger than he is. So, um, you know, growing up, he spent a lot of time with his brother because they were so close in age. And they, they just got paired together all the time, having to do chores, do everything. It was, oh, you and you and Toroff go do this, or you two go do that. And, the, you know, very occasionally where they split up 
And I, I think, you know, his brother was his best friend. I mean, every, even in the later years, they did a lot of things together. They were both in the American Legion, the same Legion Hall, even though they both were drafted after World War II. And my father was sent to Korea, but my uncle drafted a little earlier, was actually sent back to Germany during the occupation on the reverse side, which he thought was very ironic that all these Germans had occupied my country for years. And now I'm over here in Germany trying to help, you know, occupy them and get them back on their feet, at least, I guess, for the West Germans, as the East German was still part of or controlled by Russia. Right. So, I mean, there you'd start off the book very early, what, 1936. So they're together, Trigva and Thorold are together, kind of young kids, but they're tasked with many responsibilities to kind of help out kind of like at a farm environment. Can you talk about the stuff they had to do to kind of keep the household intact? Oh, yes. Um, So once my grandfather left and basically left them in charge at a very young age and said, you know, well, you've got to help your mom out as much as you can, you know, and that's when she decided to go live with her mother, who was also alone because my dad's grandfather had died uh, as a complication from the Spanish flu. And so they all kind of moved into one house just north of Vansa in southern Norway. And we're all living together in the one house. So it was my dad, his brothers and sister, his mom, and his grandmother. So there's six of them in a very small house, but they made it work. Um, there was a lot of relatives living around. So they had lots of uncles and some cousins, although my dad and his brother were the oldest of the cousins and most of the cousins were much younger. So they got tasked with helping on the farms and doing a lot of the chores all around the house. So one of the jobs that they, I write about early on is my dad's uncle Tarled had the largest farm. He was the only son and the way things were in Norway is the oldest son inherited the farm or whatever property. And so he had taken over the farm when he got married at, I think, 19 and basically took his mom and bought another house down the road and and set her up there, but really wanted to run the farm as a man and his family and start having children. And so my dad and uncle, when they first got over there, he had a peat bog down at the bottom of the hill near the water. And the peat had to be cut every year and stacked and dried. And they basically use that for cooking because peat once dried is a little easier to regulate in a wood burning stove, or in this case, a peat burning stove to cook with. And a lot of the wood that was used was used generally just to heat the farm. And so this was a very arduous job for you can imagine a 10 year old and a 12 year old with my uncle down there cutting out large stacks of peat and peat is cut with a long spade in about three foot sections that are six inch by six inch. And he's throwing them up on the, on the ground because he's down in the hole cutting it. And then they're stacking them and, and sorting them out and moving them around and doing all that. And it's just a lot of backbreaking work of heavy things when you're, you're a kid and you're lifting something that's 40 pounds all day long and stacking it and stacking it. And I tried to reflect that really well in that chapter that there was lots of hard work to do 
and they just did what they were told. In other words, this is this just part of your life. You're going to do this one day. You're going to help plant things on other days. You're going to help harvest. We need you to fish. Everybody fished in Norway. There's water everywhere. So there's freshwater fish and obviously saltwater fish. If you live near the coast and had a boat or could get out, which my uncle did, he had a small rowboat for a lake. And then he had a friend who had a, a power boat at the time, which, you know, there weren't many of those. Everything was really sailboats for, for the small um, boats. And he would take them out occasionally fishing. And that's just, you know. It was Right. And there was no electricity, I think you said, in their house. So yeah. very rural, peat, you know, different, definitely a different style. I think you wrote that your mom said it burned better. It was better for cooking. But yeah, so pretty young guys, a lot of things going on around there and kind of rumblings of uh, strange happenings in Europe around that time, right? Yeah, that was a discussion in their school that they went to, uh, Mr. Dungvold, who was the teacher. And you can imagine it was a one-room schoolhouse with all of the older grades went together at one time. And it was kind of a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. And then the younger children went Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So they did split them up somewhat. But he said, I'm in a classroom with you know, maybe 20 other students and they're in five different grades. And in Norway, they really were only expected to go to school until eighth grade. So it was optional to keep going to school. And of course, my uncle and my dad, because of the war, both stopped at eighth grade and got whatever job they could later on that actually paid money. But a lot of the jobs they had had as younger children were just volunteer or day labor on other people's farms, helping them you know, pick apples for the few people that had apple trees or digging up potatoes or helping run the horse, you know, to plow up a field. So the town of Vansa down in town did have electricity, but as you got up the hill where they lived and just maybe a mile and a half out of town, the electricity didn't go any farther. So they had a, a well with a bucket and an outhouse and oil lamps if they could get oil and a couple candles and it was really, you know, just want to say it, for this country, you're talking back in the late 1800s is probably what it was more like than it was being 1930s or 1940. Right. And a lot of bartering. You said there was trading going on. People would exchange items like the old days without currency. So, yeah, and, and especially more so they did a lot of that before the war. So my great grandmother had a spinning wheel and her one of her, I think it was her sister, so it would be her son-in-law, had a sheep farm. And they would harvest the wool and she would take a lot of it and she would spin it into different yarns and then sell it back. You know, so he would, she would buy the wool and then spin it and then sell it back. And she was supposedly one of the best spinners in the town, if you can imagine, in a town that maybe has 200 people. I mean, so, but it did leave it would go to Vansa, some of it would go to Farsund, and Farsund was maybe another mile and a half from Vansa to the east, but also on the coast. And Vansa is almost kind of like, if you look at Norway, like a teardrop, it's kind mm -hmm. of right in the center, in the very middle, at the bottom. Yes, right? it's almost the most southern point of Norway. So you're close to all of the fjord, uh, like uh, inlets and things like that. Can you talk about... Um, kind of what like what happened kind of 1939-ish, the news that was going through Norway and what people were kind of talking about in the local community when, uh, you know, as the Germans kind of were on the march. 
Yeah, they they did notice, you know, what was going on and like everything else, they, they declared to be neutral. But um, obviously the Germans didn't care. So there was, they, they knew what would happen in Poland and how quick that was. And they'd seen a lot of German ships because obviously going south of Norway and between Denmark, and there's really only one way out for the ships to get out. And they did notice more and more fishing boats, which maybe weren't necessarily fishing boats, but that's how they were gathering information. And I think there's also one chapter in my book right before the war starts where they go out and their uncle Tarl notices this, that these ships are doing some weird things really close to the shore. And he goes to the doctor who I learned later on was part of the mill org later on. And they, you know, were sharing information with the British and other countries to say, look, we, we think this is coming, it's coming. And then of course it did three days later, the Germans actually invaded Oslo and I think Bergen and Kristiansand and a lot of the larger coastal cities on Southern Norway. And they didn't really get to Vansa until about a week later because they just figured, you know, little towns like this, we'll just, we'll, we'll... Right, and there was kind of a, uh, there was a significant battle for the Battle of Oslo you talk about in the book, like there were holdouts and battles and uh, old fortress oh. and the king and everything like that. Yeah, as the German ships came up, they really just kind of came up nonchalantly is the best way I can put it is they didn't really have their guns out. They weren't ready. They, they just figured they were just going to cruise right in. And then at the last minute, shoot a you know, bomb and do a bunch of things and just figured the Norwegians weren't ready. Well, fortunately, the commander of one of the islands in uh, the fjord just south of Norway, and I can't remember the name at this point, he was there with maybe 10% staff, 30% staff, and just could see this coming and knew, okay, this is not good. There's no reason they should be this far up. Um, it was an old torpedo battery in an island. And they did have some surface guns, but they fortunately were able to get off two or three torpedoes and sunk the main ship coming up the fjord at that time. And it caused the rest of the ships to retreat, which then gave the Norwegians two or three days of really just battling the paratroopers, which they could hold off because there weren't as many as you would think they were. They were just so confident they were just gonna land and, and move people off the ship and just take over the city. Now this did allow the king um, the ability and, and the governing body to kind of retreat and decide what to do. So the Battle of Oslo was a very, very large battle for Norway at the time. <clears throat> and if you can imagine that, you know, we think of communication as things that happen instantly now, but back then it really took Vansa about a week to hear about the Battle of Oslo. And even then it was, you know, pieces and parts and what to believe, what not to believe, but obviously because it was such a great story of the Norwegians fighting off the Germans, that that was the you know the truth, and it was the easy story to believe, and so that's the one that I depict. And that was kind of like the beginning, because Hakon, the king, moved went to England, so that was like the preliminary times where the relationship between Norway during the war, Norway and England, kind of began at that time, right? Yes, that that was really, I mean. They'd had relationships, but the English really did help out a lot by allowing the king and his family and other people to go there and decide how to reorganize their troops. Um, I do think it took, I'm trying to remember if the king, it, it took about a month, I think, before he actually left. 
they went up through Sweden, through the middle of Norway, which you can imagine, you know, the coast seems like it might be easy to conquer, but there's lots of parts in the central part of Norway that I don't think the Germans ever went to if it, you know, it just was so remote. They didn't need it. If it wasn't on a waterway, most of the times, I don't think the Germans were really worried about what was going on in other parts because it was so rural and so remote. Right. And so they kind of just started moving in. I was surprised to hear in your book that they brought their whole prison slave camp sensibilities all the way to Norway. That was, that was a surprise to me. Yeah, they really looked at it as the Atlantic border. They figured if they could control the whole coast of Norway, their iron supply was really coming from the northern part of Sweden. And they shipped a lot of it around. I think there were some trains coming down also that were picking it up on the other port, but a lot of it was moved by ship. And so they really wanted to protect their supply lines for materials like that, that really helped them produce all their airplanes and their tanks and everything else that they, they needed for the war. Right, so it was like a flat out invasion, not expect, I mean, with the sensibility at that time, they weren't expecting to be invaded, right? No, not at all, in fact, I did some research and it was kind of like, yes, Norway was neutral, but at one point the English thought about, um, I don't want to say attacking them, but going in and saying, look, we want to move in. We want you to be part of the war. We want to use your land because you're in, a, you're in a strategic position to help stop the Germans from getting all these supplies. And the Germans basically invaded about five days prior to the British proposing that and saying, look, we want to come in, help defend you. And so, I don't know if, you know, the Germans knew what the British were doing or if they just got lucky with their timing. Right. And so that was it. So your dad, Trigva, was then working, I think he was working in a, uh, what is it, in a nursery or something during that time, earning extra money, but mm -hmm. also uh, started, I mean, I, I think it was, uh, I mean, there were all Germans started filtering through the town where he lived in Bonsa, right? Yeah, so my uncle was really lucky to get a, almost a full-time job, but my dad, with work the way it was, had lots of one-day-a-week jobs or two-day-a-week sometimes, so he had jobs with Mr. Ellenis at the store, which later became a central point for the XU um, to gather information and disperse it. He had a job at a nursery, um, he had a job at a window factory for a while. He just had lots of odd jobs because anything to get food, which was scarce even when the war started and became more scarce as the war went on and the Germans just pretty much took everything they needed and left almost nothing. Um, but with the strategic location, I guess, being south, the Germans built an airfield, which is still in operation. Obviously, it's you know, a little larger than it was, but it's not a commercial airfield by any means. It's still a small private airport. But when they built the airfield, they brought in all the prisoners and built the prison camp because they, at that point, had lots of prisoners from, I guess, Poland and Russia. And my dad said most of the prisoners were Polish. Very few were Russian at the time and used them to build everything. The prisoners built their own prison camp, then built the airfield. And then there was a lot of um, they put some caves or tunnels in the side of the, the mountains at the low end, and they brought buzz bombs over near the very end of the war, and they were hiding buzz bombs in there and then launching them at night, 
So I don't know if they were launching into England because England was kind of a long shot and I'm not sure how far the buzz bombs could go, but I think it's possible they were and that they might have also once uh, D-Day and the allied forces came into France, might have used it to, to bomb the allies in France too, once they'd come in with the buzz bombs. But he, he did tell me one good story of he and his brothers and his sister sitting up on the hill, just watching them at night you know, launch the buzz bombs because to them it was kind of like this huge fireworks, nothing they've ever, something they've never seen before. So, right. so as he, terrible he, as it was, it was kind of an interesting thing for him to talk about and say, well, it's just kind of amazing to see this, but yes, it was a terrible thing to happen. And that was kind of, uh, they were always, it seemed like you, your dad and his brother were always kind of watching and observing things going on. That's how he got recruited, your dad to watch for some of these meetings. Can you talk about what he did as kind of a watchman and what the XU was? Yeah, so the XU, um, really in Norway, there's the XU and there's the Milorg. And the Milorg was more of the military espionage, blow things up. And the XU was more of an information gathering for reconnaissance to say, where do we see troop movements? What's going on? And then that would get pushed back. And then I believe the Milorg then used that information, shared it obviously with the allies and Britain, and then to decide what to do internally as far as retaliation. Um, he started out, I guess, his, the problem, I guess his friend was killed, for lack of a better term, by the Germans who had had the job before him. So Tor had the job. And he didn't know Tor had the job until he went to work one day and um, Mr. Ellenis kind of explained how things were and what Tor was really doing. And then I think it was um, Dr. Halverson who actually recruited my father and said, look, I need a replacement. Well, my dad had been the watchman at the store for probably a year and a half prior to then for these secret meetings to just kind of say, okay, somebody's coming, we need to go hide or you need to, you know, you need to change what you're doing. Um, and that's really how it started. So then once he was given the job, which I think it was in the last year of the war when he took it over, his house or his grandmother's house sat at the top of a hill and he called it a mountain because it's maybe a thousand feet up, but was the closest one to the airfield and the coast. And they were the last house on the road at the very top. So there was no reason to go any further. He would walk up to the top of the hill and from there he could see the airfield, what was going on, the coast and some ship movements from around the, you know, the, the western side down to the south. And he would just report on that and just say, this is what I saw today, this is what was going on. You know, these planes flew in, these flew out, this was an attack by the British, which a lot of times they knew because when the British attacked and tried to blow up the airfield, everybody knew about it. I mean, you know, bombs are going off and people are running around, but he would try to say how many planes he saw or, you know, note, what did the Germans do? Did they go hide in the cave? Did they go over here? Did they, and those, that type of information, I believe when passed on, helped the allies decide, okay, maybe we should attack from this direction, or maybe we should attack from a really low profile so they don't see us coming, you know, stick right along the water or bomb from really up high. There really weren't many um, German planes for retaliation. He did talk about one or two dogfights that happened. And there was, 
because they were kind of mesmerized by it. Um, it crashed, he said, maybe 100 yards from one of the airplanes. And it wasn't until they were looking up in the air and saw the plane coming and getting larger and not really moving left or right or that they ran. And he said, you know, it crashed on the hill maybe 100 yards below us and was on fire. And it, fortunately, in his opinion, it was a German plane that crashed and it was not a British plane. Right, and you and there were also kind of events that happened in Norway where there's commandos. Can you tell the story about Televag and what happened with that? Uh, when <clears throat> so, like, and, and the, the Germans didn't bring just their uh, concentration camp, but also had media control as well. Can you talk about Televag and media control and what happened? I guess, yeah. They so okay when they came in. They took all the radios from everybody, every house of which my grandmother commented, don't have a radio, we don't have electricity, but they really confiscated everything there could be for communication wise, radios, guns, obviously, and then started their own propaganda and let out information as they needed to, um, to say, you know, we're winning the war, you all are, you know, are losing, you need to surrender, you need to help us, you should give up now, stop fighting back those kind of things. And it was really, my dad got information from Mr. Dungvold, who he was pretty sure had a shortwave radio and was the local connection for the XU to Britain and to other parts of Norway. And if it wasn't for him, I guess, being the lookout, he probably wouldn't have gotten most of the information he did hear of because a lot of it was just tight-lipped. They didn't want people sharing the information because they didn't want to trace it back to who originally gave it to them. So a lot of the information that he learned about, let's just say, uh, the telemark and the heavy water and the stories like that, or on the Shetland bus, which was a, um, a Western town where there was a family in a town that shuttled people at night to England and back and brought over commandos and took Norwegians that, you know, had lots of information that needed, the British wanted from them. And, and in that case, that story is when the Germans found out about the Shetland bus, they went into the town and killed everybody. Everybody, every male and every, I want to say, child, I think it was like 12 years and older, and burned the entire town down. And it was things like that where those stories got out because the Germans wanted those stories to get out. It's like, hey, you know, you're fighting back against us. We're just going to wipe out your entire town. And that was the fear my dad said his mother had and a lot of the adults had. It's just, no, don't do anything. Don't, don't you dare. Don't fight back, which is why he felt so guilty by helping. But he really just thought that his friend who had been killed by the Germans for helping, he just said, they're, they're just so bloody. We have to fight back. We have to do something, but I've got to keep it a secret. I've got to make sure my mom never finds out about it. I got to make sure nobody finds out about it. And it was not really until his mom died that he even talked about anything like that. I mean, most of the stories were the, were the Germans were here and yeah, they took our food and they did this, you know, and, and we just were like, like sheep and we, you know, followed what they needed when really he wasn't. He was one of, I know, many people. And later on from talking to, um, I talked to an Arthur Hansen, 
who basically is the same age as my father, did the same things. And it's just how I think every town had someone like my father or had an entire network. If you can imagine a town with maybe 200 people, and I bet you 20 of them were helping in the town between different connections, people doing different things, passing information. And then you get to a larger town. I'm sure it's the same way. Every town had to have a story like my father's. And I was just lucky enough to get to write it down. And and I hope, you know, people enjoy reading it and learning about it. But it's really fascinating. What, uh, how, and talking about the story, how did your dad relate to this? You tell a story about him being up on the hill at a rock at important places. Can you tell how this got passed to you, the story? Yeah. uh, So the, the premise started long before that. My wife was doing genealogy and talking about her family and her family on her mother's side is the last name is Stone. So William Stone and all these people, one of them signed the Declaration of Independence. And she had all these wonderful, interesting stories about all her relatives. And I said, well, you know, I can't go back quite as far as you, but my father had a pretty interesting life, you know, the way he grew up, born in Brooklyn, depression, moves to Norway, has to help out, comes and gets occupied by the Germans, you know, comes back, gets drafted, goes to Korea. There's, I said, it's a pretty interesting life. And so I started writing down the one stories I could remember. And then to kind of confirm things, you know, because I'd mostly heard them from my father. I went and talked to his brother. I talked to his sister. And 90% of the time you get the same story. You obviously get a little different flair and a little different point of view. And it wasn't until I went to Norway with my father after hearing all these stories, I said, well, dad, I really want to visit these places. I want to see the house you grew up in. I want to see the town, the coastline. I want to see all these wonderful things. And we went and visited all the relatives. And same thing, none of them talk a lot about the war other than it was a war. But when we went to his grandmother's house and drove up in front of it, it was like he was 14 years old again. He started speaking only in Norwegian, of which he had not taught any of us Norwegian. Now we understood maybe just a little bit. And he's pointing and he's looking and he's got this great grin on his face and he's, and he's just so ecstatic. And he starts running up the hill. If you can imagine my father at 70 running, any of us at 70 running up a hill, it, just, it was flooring to me. It just surprised me. And he gets to the top of the hill and there's these large rocks sticking out of the ground and large, maybe three feet, four feet tall. And he's looking over the coast and he's just quiet. And you can see down and you can see the airport the way it is now. And you can see the coastline and he's just looking over it. And then he kind of, all of a sudden it like hits him. Like, yeah, there were a lot of great memories here at this house, but then there was also a lot of things I did that were not great memories and maybe were against my mother. And he, there was such a strong family that, you know, growing up, even as a kid for me, I'd go over and visit and whatever my grandmother said is what you did. You didn't say no, you didn't, you didn't, you know, fight back on anything. You just said yes, and you did it. And I'm sure that's how he was raised. And then to get to that age where you're 15 and you have your own opinion and you think, okay, yes, everything that my mom tells me to do, I want to do, but maybe she's not always right. She's got her reasons for we shouldn't fight back. We shouldn't do this because I want to keep the entire family safe. But every now and then, you know, he had to do what he thought was right. And that really, I think, is what hit him at the top of the hill. And he thought, 
you know, I did all these things and you know, he didn't kill anybody. He didn't, you know, do anything like you would think some of the great um, Millard people probably did fighting back, but he, he did what he could at his age to really just, you know, help and give information. And he was lucky enough that he knew a lot of the people in town and they knew where he lived and he was perfectly situated in a position to see everything from where he was, as opposed to having to go down in town and walk around and maybe look a little more conspicuous. So yeah, I no, think it's it, a great story. Uh, so I commend you for writing this book. Where's the best place? I mean, it has excellent reviews on Amazon. Where's the best place people can get the book? Well, obviously Amazon, um, but it is for sale at Barnes and Noble and all the online bookstores in an ebook or in paperback. Um, and you have a website too, right? Yes, um, it's kurtblorstad.com. And on the website, I do have some personal interviews with my uncle um, where he talks a little bit about the war. Sometimes he talks about the dogfight. I could get him to open up more when he was 90, I think is how old he is when I interview him. And his memory is, is still pretty good. You know, he, he would, I'd go often for an interview and ask him the same question just to make sure I'm getting the same answer every time because I didn't want to think he's confusing it with something else. And even at 90, a lot of those things, he hit spot on every time he told me the story. And in fact, in one, he started speaking in German. And I said, now, you know, I don't speak Norwegian and German's probably even less for me. He said, oh, I'm sorry. He says, he was telling me a conversation he was having with the German soldier. And so he just went right into German telling me the story. Interesting. Yeah, so all that family history is there. Again, the website is K-U-R-T-B-L-O-R-S-T-A-D.com. And the title of the book is Occupied, a novel based upon a true story by Kurt Florstad, published 2019. Thank you so much, Kurt. Oh, thank you, William. You have a good day. You too. Take care. Stay there.